tomorrow is the third Monday of January. Now, that day, the third Monday in January, has been long since diagnosed or described as the gloomiest, saddest day of the year. So just the, you have 24 hours to maybe try and make the most of it. Due to a combination of uh, post-Christmas blues, um, cold dark nights, uh, failure to keep your New Year's resolutions, um, all the credit card bills coming in, and yet the next payslip just isn't quite here yet, the third Monday in the year, the saddest day of the year. In fact, there's a medical term for the winter blues, seasonal affective disorder or SAD, SAD. Um, Now, apparently, a university professor managed to precisely calculate why using the formula formula on the screen. Weather is W, debt is D, time since Christmas is T, time since failing on New Year's resolutions is Q, low motivational levels, um, the need to take action, N-A. Supposedly, the date is calculated by using all these different factors I'm not quite sure what the units he used for this were or how you can uh, quantify some of these things. But it may not all be as it seems because apparently this uh, equation is a PR stunt by a travel company. It does, it's not real at all. But there's something about it that made you think, that seems about right. There's something about this time of year that makes you think, yeah, this is rubbish. It's dark when I go to work. It's dark when I come home. It's dark when I go to school. It's dark when I come home from school. I've no money. I've no motivation. Rubbish on TV. (sighs) There's just this deflation this time of year. The equation may be fake, but it's hard to deny the reality of the sad disorder. And it's part of the reason why I felt that spending the first couple of January would be good to think about hope, specifically the thrill of hope. This is something that should excite the believer. This is something that we can lay hold of and anchor us regardless of what's going to come in 2019. We have a hope that is sure and steadfast and one that can excite us and, and motivate us and keep us going. But you look around and you see that the world desperately needs hope. If you've been watching the news at all, there are many pessimistic people on TV and in the newspapers. And as Christians, we are not immune to the ups and downs of life. We certainly don't live in a bubble where it's all easy and everything falls into place. That's not how it is. And anyone, any Christian who thinks that that is what life is like or should be like probably isn't really paying attention, certainly not the Scripture. What we do have, though, is an anchor in the storms of life. What we do have is something that can keep us safe and secure when the world throws its worst at us. And that hope is found in Jesus. Now, let's be clear, it's not found in church. Okay? And I'm not saying this church, I'm not saying any church. No, just it's not found in church. 
And it's certainly not found in a pastor. It's not in habits that we have or, or rituals that we create for ourselves. Okay, so showing up here tonight, it's great to have you. And I hope that you enjoy the service. I hope God speaks to you. But simply coming into a room isn't going to be enough to fix the problems that are in your life. And certainly trying harder isn't going to work either. I am very guilty of doing that. It gets hard, so what do I do? I'm going to try and do more stuff. Oh, I'm getting busy. I know. I'll do more stuff to try and help the work. I don't know why, but I always want to try and do more. My solution, let's do more. It's a terrible solution, just saying. But in our society, it's our go-to reaction. We'll either blame everyone else for making life hard, or we'll try and fix everything ourselves. And we try to counter our insecurities by trying harder and harder and harder. And all we do is we burn out. And we end up frustrated, unwell, anxious. Hoping that a New Year's resolution will fix everything. I'm sorry, you're wrong. I'm not saying that we couldn't all try to eat a wee bit healthier or do a wee bit more. Certainly we all could. I'm just saying that the big problems are still going to be there. We need a bigger hope. Which is why we say our hope is not in church or in people, but in Christ, in knowing him, in being known by him in a personal way, because it's not about how we perform, but all about who he is. That's where the thrill of our hope comes from. It's the relationship we have with him that keeps us afloat when everyone else is drowning. Now, let me read to you a couple of verses from Luke 23. It's the description of the execution of our Savior, the crucifixion. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull there, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who, who were hanged reeled at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said unto him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. John, uh, sorry. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, a sign of anguish 
in the Jewish time. We've been spending this time in the last couple of weeks thinking about hope, especially in hopeless situations. And if you've missed any of the series, it'll be on the podcast. We looked at how um, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, it looked like Jesus had initially withdrawn that Jesus wasn't taking any interest in the people, but in fact, he is someone who knows exactly when to show up. He comes at just the right moment. He is there always, but he reveals himself in in unexpected times and unexpected places. Then we saw the woman caught in the act of adultery. She knows that she's in the wrong. She knows that she's been caught red-handed. She knows all these things, and she can sense that she is going to die that morning. She's broken. She's weeping. She's ashamed, and yet nothing happens. And she looks up to see Christ standing over and saying, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A picture of what it means to be saved. We have a Savior who speaks up for us. Yes, we are guilty. We deserve to be punished for the things that we've done wrong. And yet we can hear Christ say to us, but I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a picture of salvation. And then last Sunday night, we looked at a father who had been hurt by the disciples, the followers of Jesus. And we saw how it can be difficult whenever churches and Christians let us down. And sometimes that can impact our faith and our trust in God. We struggle sometimes whenever we get hurt by people who shouldn't be hurting us. And it's hard. And yet we saw that Christ is a Savior who will hold us up whenever our faith is sometimes weaker than what we would like it to be. Tonight, I want to look at one of the most powerful pictures of who our Savior is. He is one who gave himself up for us. I don't know how you imagine the crucifixion as, as we were reading it. I, I hope you don't think of the Sunday school version where it's just so clean and so sanitized and so matter of fact that it's almost, it's almost no big deal anymore. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins and he rose again the third day. And we kind of just rattle it off and we don't really think about what actually happened. It's just statements that we make. It's almost like it didn't cost him anything. You just, yeah, okay, what are you doing? Oh, I can't go out Friday. I'm, I'm dying. And then on Sunday, I'll, I'll, be, I'm, I'll see you Monday. No. This was huge. Remember when you go up to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, uh, and we see that, <coughs> excuse me, on, on the night he was betrayed, uh, and we see that he goes away by himself to pray, and such is his stress and his anxiety and the anguish with which he's praying. The blood vessels are bursting, and he literally starts sweating drops of blood. This was no small thing for our Savior. This is no small thing. Let us not think small about the crucifixion. And yet, I don't want you thinking about the movie version either. You know that one Mel Gibson did, The Passion of the Christ? I don't know, about 15 years ago now. Now, in one sense, it will give you a fairly accurate picture of what the physical suffering looked like. But I don't want that to be your primary focus, certainly not this evening. Instead, I want to bring you a lot closer to the story. I want to place you right up close to Jesus, so close that you can 
see his eyes. So close, you can't see the blood and the open wounds. So close that you can't see the sweat. Just his, his eyes, that you're so close that you can just stare. And that, that picture, you know, of, of, of intimacy between someone, where you're sharing a moment. And I want you to look into the eyes of the Savior in these moments as he is dying on the cross. And as you lock your imagination into that thought, if you want, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and I want you to listen to these verses. In Romans 5, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, Perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4 says, this is love. Not that we love God, not that we were running to him, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The crux of the matter is not to simply inform us that he died and then he rose again. The point is not to look at how much Jesus suffered and how sore it was. The core issue here is that Jesus Christ suffered and died while thinking about you. He was doing this for you. That's the point of the story. That's the point of it being recorded in Scripture. God allowed His Son to come into this world, not to be an example, not to walk around in our shoes so He could be, you know, more relatable. Not even to give us this token gesture that He loved us. He came so that He could rescue you and redeem you because He loves you. This is a love story wrapped up in a story of rescue and sacrifice. He loved you enough to die for you so that you might live. Because he loves you, he willingly gave himself up to die so that you might know a new life in him where there is no more condemnation, but there is hope and there is joy, and there is peace. Carl and his wife Diane, those aren't the real names, had had a tough 2018. Job loss, poor health, a miscarriage made for a pretty rough Christmas. And as they sat alone in the silence of the living room on Boxing Day night, Carl snuffed out what little was left of her 14-year marriage. The guilt of a one-time, long-ago affair was too heavy to carry, and he chose that moment to confess. You can only imagine. Maybe you don't need to imagine. Diane, understandably destroyed, packed up her things and moved into her sister's house, and Carl was left to face the four-wall reality of what his sin had done. the reality that he had been hiding from for so long. He had been numbed by denial for so long, but now he sees the carnage. He feels the stark hurt and loneliness of it. But the Bible says, while we were still weak, at just the right 
time. Let me tell you about Andrew. Andrew is an elder at a church. He, gave, he got saved as a teenager at camp one year and immediately got involved in the church. He grew in knowledge and wisdom and was a real asset to the church, so much so that they brought him into leadership. But Andrew was diagnosed with the clinical depression before he was even saved in his teens. And it carried the weight of that into adulthood. It carried the weight of that into the church. It carried the weight of that into his marriage. And it carried the weight of that into his parenting. He felt no shame in taking his medication, nor should he. But he wondered if the meds were masking a deeper problem. And so, surrounded by his wife and the church and medical professionals and counselors, trained counselors, he came off the meds. He thought, well, what would it hurt to come off these just for a season? It's, it's okay. Debbie sounds a wee bit differently there, so she does. What would it have hurt to come off the meds for just a season? The answer is that it hurt a lot. Surrounded by all these people, going to the counseling and, and meeting with his GP, he still managed to hit levels that he never imagined that were below rock bottom. And for two years, even now, back on the medication, Andrew has realized that he depends on God more than anyone or anything. And while he can look back to a time whenever he was a teenager and see that God saved him there and then, he is still constantly depending on the, the redemption of God in his life. For while we were still weak, And at just the right time. Let me tell you about Ashley. Pastor's daughter. Her family was very busy and wrapped up in the life and fabric of a church. She had a huge hole in her life for attention. And anything that masqueraded as affection got her into lots of trouble as she grew up. Um, and it wasn't easy. There were many unhealthy relationships along the way. She ended up being far away from where she thought she would be as an adult. Then something happened at the funeral of her former youth pastor who was killed in a car accident aged 31. It was one of those things that took everyone by surprise and then the place was packed out and bunged out. But everything that people were saying about this youth pastor, all of it was true. Ashley knew it was true, how he had this love for Jesus and this infectious desire and passion for life. It struck a chord. All Ashley could think about was how if it had been her, nobody would have said these things about her. She wouldn't be surprised if nobody even showed up for her funeral because she felt there wasn't much to remember or admire about her life. Especially after the wedding incident. You see, she'd been supposed to be made of honor for a friend, but in the weeks leading up to the ceremony, Ashley had started to drink heavily again. And at one of the planning events, she was, showed up angry. She was disruptive. She was embarrassing. She'd done a good job of wrecking her friendship with the bride that day. 
The bride's other friends told her she'd be well within her rights to never speak to Ashley again, never mind kicking her off the bridal party. Instead, the bride took a different approach. She came to Ashley in grace and forgiveness, and she took time out of her busy schedule of planning to invest with Ashley and asked how she could help Ashley. Most of all, her friends told her of the love that she had for her, that it is bigger than one incident, bigger than one problem, that it was lasting much like the love that Jesus had for both of them. Because while we were still weak, and at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You've got to love Romans 5 and 6. Who is the ungodly? The ungodly are people who are unlike God. If a godly person is someone who is striving to be more like God, an ungodly person is someone who's going the other direction. They've got nothing of any God's characteristics about them. You might think, well, an ungodly person then is undeserving of God. An ungodly person should be unloved by God. Verse 8, but while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. This is how he shows we are still loved. On Friday night, I, I was here in this very remote setting just in front of the communion table, and I was making a big point about communication, that it's not just about what is said, but how we said it is so important. Look at how Christ tells the world that he loves us. It's not about whether we can be good enough to earn his love or be bad enough for him to fall out of love with us. The cross says, even when you were weak, even when you were ungodly, even when you were at your worst, I still love you enough to die for you. You're worth dying for. Said even me, even you. Even those, yes. Go back to the looking into the eyes of the Savior. The old song says that while he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Do you believe that he loved you enough to die for you? Whenever I was weak, whenever I was ungodly, when I was, or at least when I should have been, unlovable to God, he loved me enough to say, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to wipe away that. I'm going to give you a new start, a clean slate. And in this new relationship of ours, I will be with you in the storms of life. What a hope we have in Jesus. How thrilling this is because he gave himself up for us. If it was up to us, we would never meet the standard. We would never be good enough to pay the debt. Yet God, through his son, and the most basic core thing of the Christian faith, I still can't get my head around. I still can't figure out why he would love me. I still can't figure that out. And yet I am so glad he does. Because I'm lost without it. Now I wish I had more time to lay this out this, morning, this evening. But you know, if I could just pray one thing for you, if I could pray for just one thing above everything else I would pray, it would be that you would comprehend more of the love that God has for you and the price that he paid for you to love him in return. 
That, that, would be a, that would be the one prayer I would pray. Whether you're saved, unsaved, whether you're close to God or far from God, whatever your relationship with God is tonight, that would be my prayer for you, that you know more of the love of God for you. I'm tired of seeing you tired. I'm tired of being tired. Of trying to express and grasp to you the fact that he loves you totally, completely, immutably. Not... Not some future version of yourself where you've got it all sorted out. He loves you as you are right now. We always think, oh yeah, the guy in the future, yeah, you'll love that guy. Because I can't wait to be that guy. Going to be tall and thinner and richer and more fluent in Hebrew and Greek. And my family will be all united and one and will be lovely. And Yeah, got to love that guy. But mm, this guy right now, no. Nonsense. While I was still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for me. He could not love you more than what he does right now. And you don't need to move from where you are, not to the right, not to the left. You are loved, not because you were so lovable that God couldn't resist you. But because God is love. God is love. We think, but I'm so bad compared to other people. I can possibly... <laughs> yeah, I can understand why you would love some of these people over here in some of these churches and the, the nice things that they're doing, the charity that they're doing. But I don't do those things. The truth is that when we do that, we do two things. We minimize God's love to less than what it really is. And number two, we make our sin bigger than what it really is. Now, I need to be careful here. Because you are more sinful than you think you are. Okay? You are more sinful than you think you are. My point is, you are loved more than you could possibly imagine. Okay, so listen. Sin is the most vilest, most destructive disease that you could possibly imagine. It destroys families, it destroys communities, it destroys marriages, it destroys friendships, and it sends souls to hell. But my point is that you shouldn't start thinking that one sin is more offensive than others to God. All sin is to reject God's ways over our own. So whether you deal with your problems with gossip or, or murder or theft or, or selfishness, it, it's a sin because you're, you're saying, okay, God, I know you've got one way, but I'm doing it my way. That's the heart of sin. Romans 3 tells us as such, there's no difference between a Jew or if you want to paraphrase, there's no difference between religious people and non-religious people. Whether you've been at church all your life and you know the Bible and you've got it all memorized, or whether you've never opened it once. It, there's no difference in God's eyes between religious people and non-religious people, between Jew and Gentile. Why? Why would they, Paul write this? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's no difference. We've all, we've all messed up. We all need saved. We all need redeemed. We all need forgiveness. We all need a savior. And, but all are justified freely by his grace. Not our works, but his grace through the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. 
God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to proceed by faith. Not earning it, but receiving grace through faith. In other words, whatever bracket you put yourself in tonight, you come under this one. Awe. But Jeff, what, what, what about the awe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you see, if you go back into my path, no, awe. Yeah, but you see, what, what about this guy who, well, is he a person? Yeah, okay, well, awe. You know, awe. To think that you could outsin the love of God is to believe the biggest lie out there. All can come. All can find that fresh start in Christ. Sins are forgiven when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and put our trust in Him and stop trying to do it ourselves. Because it's not received by us deserving it. It's received by us believing in Him and trusting in Him and knowing grace through Him. That it's His goodness and His forgiveness that saves us. To God we have all sinned. Each one of us, but each one of us is loved by the same passionate, pursuing, relentless love of God. All. And just as we think, this, this, this is the thing about being a preacher. I, I'm trying to tell you something. I can barely grasp myself. And so I, I know... Oh, okay, I, I'm struggling here with this because it's hard. It's hard to try and, and come up with new ways of telling you that God loves you whenever you can't really grasp it. And you're just amazed by it and your mind just goes, wow. Because that's not a really good sermon. Someone's standing here and just going, guys, wow. But wow. God loves us. Not because of who I am. It's because of who he is. We've got to walk in that. We've got to keep ourselves in that. And if you have to, you've got to fight for that. And if you're not a Christian this evening, then, then here's the truth of it. The only way to have a sure hope for the future is not trying to be better. Your sin is too big for that. You're never going to be able to do enough to undo the sin that you've done. In fact, if you keep ignoring Christ the way that God has laid out for us to be saved, you're only continuing to sin more because you're doing my way over God's way. And that's the definition of sin. The only way to know hope is to look to the cross that Christ hung on and see that while I was still weak, at the right time Christ died for me, an undeserving sinner. And he did it despite all the reasons as to why he shouldn't. He really does love me that much. He really does love you that much. And that's who we are as people who've been saved. That's all a Christian is. You know, I, I get frustrated at people saying, oh, I couldn't be a Christian. You are all just hypocrites anyway. Yeah, we are. Because we're not perfect. We're forgiven. It's, it's different. So I couldn't be a Christian. I, I couldn't keep up being good. So, well, no, neither can we. <laughs> neither can we. You're more than welcome to join the club. Because 
do you know what it means whenever you get something that you deserve? That's called a wage. That's called a payment. That's employment. You know, you put in your shift, you do your work, you meet your goals, you hit your targets, your employer will give you your wage. It's not love, it's not giving, it's not caring, it's not a gift. This is not the language that God speaks about when he speaks about how he feels about us, how salvation is supposed to work. This is not something we earn. This is something that he has done that he might glorify his name. And so this is the sum total of it. We are people who are deeply loved by God and are looking and trusting in and on the one who gave himself up for us. You know, it would have been merciful for God just to send us to hell for a little bit and then to totally destroy us. That would have been merciful. But he has saved us from that place totally and completely. It would have been gracious if he had just sent us somewhere neutral. Some might use the word purgatory. To to create a a neutral place where where we could all just go because, well, we weren't bad, we're not good. That would be merciful. But it is absolutely inconceivable that he would allow us to become, say, angels. To make us servants in his house. You know, if, if I could get into heaven in the back door and work on the pots and pans, if I could do that and serve him in some way, that would be inconceivable. And yet that's not how he has chosen to deal with me. Rather, for those who are trusting in him, he has chosen to adopt us, call us a son, call us a daughter and to give us the full joys and benefits that comes from being part of the family. We are his sons and daughters. Okay, get this. We're not servants working off a debt. Or we're not working to try and please him. We're family who he calls his own. And we get to live now as ambassadors for Christ. Not ambassadors of the law or the letter or the word. That's not our calling but his own dear son who gave himself up for us. And there's a majesty to that, a beauty to that that is sharp, pierces me, kills me. You don't need much for the Christian life. You really don't. Just an exalted, higher, wider, deeper, fuller view of Christ. People don't need clever ideas or witty slogans or more technology or Facebook pop psychology. They need Christ. They need this message. And that's that's why it pierces me. That's why it kills me. That's why it's hard in the terror and the burden of the preacher because I'm not your pastor. I'm, I'm not the pastor of this church. I'm God's pastor. I work for him. And my job is to come to God day after day after day and cry out and cry out and cry out that I must have more of Christ in my life so that I can come to you and say, okay, look, guys, we need to be serious about this. We need to do something about this because hell is real and heaven is real and Christ 
love for us is so real. We need to do something about this. And by somehow, if I can be consumed by that love that Christ has for us, I can come to you and say, here is a hope that we have. And that maybe in seeing Christ, it would be enough for you. That it would be enough. No more trying harder to save yourself. No more ignoring it and blaming everyone else. But looking to the cross. Looking into his eyes. And saying, okay, I know it was for me that Christ died. And I accept his love. I accept his forgiveness. I want that. Let's pray. Father,